Welcome to the Dealmaker Show, the number one place for entrepreneurs and dealmakers to learn about leveraging and generating status, frame control, and narrative power to close big deals. Here is your host, investment banker, deal-making expert, and best-selling author of Pitch Anything and Flip the Script, Mr. Oren Claff. All right, I guess that's me. Hey, welcome to the Dealmaker Show, another episode where I dive into things that are very interesting, compelling, and I'm curious about in business, negotiation, technology, and culture. I have been working very hard to bring people here on camera, on audio for you who, uh, how can I say this? Oh yeah, know what the fuck they're doing. Like these guys don't have opinions on how things might work someday or how things used to work. They're out doing things today, raising money, closing deals, negotiation at, at high stakes. And so I'd like to introduce you to somebody that I respect greatly, Mark Hunter. Mark is uh, one of these sales professionals that will sort of break the mold in my mind, hopefully your mind as well, as what a salesperson is. A lot of people, you watch movies and they they see shows and encounter really low-level salespeople who are selling stuff $5,000 below. That's most of the salespeople that we encounter, right? And we get a sense that they're charming uh, and they are charismatic and they're smooth. I think when you see real sales guys who negotiate things at a high level, 200,000, 250,000, 500,000, million, $5 million level, you see a different kind of personnel and they're not necessarily smooth at all. Although Mark is both smooth and capable and experienced, I'm really glad to have him here. Uh, before we end up talking the whole show without actually introducing the guy, I'd like to bring him on. Hey Mark, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me on today. I've been looking forward to this. You know, you know, I've read your book, so hey, we finally get to talk, man. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, so yeah, I think uh, it's good that you've been through the books. You can see that the world I live in is very high stakes in the sense that we don't have this incredible steady stream of leads for what we do. We might prepare a pitch or a sales presentation that, that 11 people in the entire world will ever see, and we got to close two of them. And so that's you know why those books, Pitch Anything and Flip the script are written in those in that particular way. But I listened to a couple of your podcasts and uh, I'm, I have some questions for you about sales today that I'm very interested in uh, in hearing. But if you want, may, maybe we'll just give you the full screen here for a second and give a little bit of your background. So there's some context of, you know, in terms of like the kinds of situations that you get into, why they're hard and the problems that you solve. I think, you know, rather than, you know, I was uh, a poor black sharecropper in Kansas uh, and we go through middle school, high school, you know, college and first job. Well, what are the situations you get into today that most people find hard that you got to have to find solutions for? I'll give you the screen for a minute as you tell us your story. Sure. I, you know, situation right, right now, I'm working with two companies where we're in the process of raising 50 million plus. And high stakes game, yeah, high stakes game. And um, in in both cases, are they life or death? No, they've got current financing, but getting the financing is going to accelerate their growth. Last week, I was over in Spain. Company brought me over, and you talk a lot about this in your book that you got to really have the presence before you get there. They found me. They reached out to me three weeks ago. This was a meeting of twelve people. Twelve people. They fly me over to Spain. Mark, we want, we got to sit at your feet and you got to talk to us. 
about how we're going to strategically double the size of, of our company. They're already a successful global company. So the, this is the type of situation that I find myself in. But it's not just always at that level. Believe me, I'm, I'm down on the streets doing a lot because I find street cred gives you boardroom talking points. Boardroom talking points gives you street cred. Well, I think, no. you know, as, as I go through these uh, conversations with people like you, I like to highlight the things that maybe people just gloss over. But uh, I recognize as absolutely elemental to business negotiation, closing deals. And I think what you just said is street cred or doing things at a micro level is what gives you credibility at the boardroom. A lot of people think you go in the boardroom, you know, you're talking to investors, you're talking to executives, you're talking to the $500 million level. You're, it's all, all sort of like big time. But uh, those guys are already big time. They're already managing $100 million and they are they have capital from a $20 billion fund and their companies are doing 50 million or growing 30%. Like they, they're already in control of all that. The thing you can really add in the boardroom is what's happening at the micro level on the front lines. That's what they need to know. They don't need to know more of what they already know. They need to know what's happening down at the competition, at the uh, uh, you know the, the things that actually consumer preferences, business preferences, what's really working in conversion, what's happening. They, they come there to know the details. That is so spot on in one of them. And I won't go into any, any names or anything, but it's like, how are we going to deploy this money? And this is one of the things that they're turning to me to yeah. say, how, how are we going to deploy? Okay. So you're looking for 50 million and we're going to deploy 30 million of it into the sales and marketing arena. How specifically, and why should we have confidence in your plan? You talk a lot about this in your book. I mean, you talk a lot that if, if that investment group doesn't see the confidence in what you can execute and the track record with which you can execute, forget it. Yeah, there's, there's plenty of places that they can put their money. And so not only it, that, yeah. not only that, but in my mind, sales and marketing is where money goes to die. Like <sighs> that is when, when investors look at a plan and they go, hey, 30%, 50% of the money is going to go into sales and marketing. Right. And they go, mm, that's where most of my money uh, has committed suicide over there in that part of the business. So so I think unless you really have the only way you get money in my mind for sales and marketing is if you have a spreadsheet. And then at the bottom of that spreadsheet, there is uh, advertising, conversion, conversion rate, you know, multiple uh, ad streams. Uh, ability to buy media at scale, all these little details that then make the strategy. But uh, nobody is putting, you know, $30 million into sales and marketing unless they see a long track record of buying media and converting that media. That is so spot on because it's just smoke. Other than that, it's like, wait a minute, I, I, I can, you know, you know, I, I, I always tell people, hey, the fastest way to lose 100000 is to sink $20,000 into a bar. You know, you know, you know, you buy a bar, you're going to lose, you're going to lose your shorts. And that's the way a lot of investors look at sales spot on. So you better have that detailed plan and you'd better have the track record of individuals that are going to substantiate that that money is going to be spent and spent properly. And what is going to be my conversion? What's my acquisition cost? What is my lifetime value? What, what are all these various metrics and what gives you the credit? And this is the, what gives you the credibility to be able to say that those numbers are valid. For, sh for sure. So when you go into a company and they say, hey, we want to double our sales and you look at them, 
what are the first kind of the, the largest problems you see that's holding them back? And so it's a two part, are there things holding them back or are there things that they're not necessarily doing wrong, but they have to go up a level upskill? So well, there's really two issues. One is they don't have the right people in place. I, I, I always say, look, if, 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 if you're looking to double your volume, you've got to have horsepower at the top of the food chain. That's 3x that. Because again, you're going to grow into, into that strength. But B, what I see too many times is they're chasing too many divergent opportunities at the same time. Get focused. Get focused. One of the critical things I believe in sales and in growth is you got to really understand where is my core competency? Who, who is that? What segment of the marketplace can I stand out? Because many times what happens is, okay, you're well known to yourself, but you're not well known to everybody else. And the example I love to use is look at the millions of dollars Coca-Cola spends every year on advertising. Now, if Coca-Cola has to spend that amount of money on advertising, and I think everybody knows what a Coke bottle looks like. Don't think for a moment that you're going to be effective in your business. Hey, hey, Mark, I didn't know you were going to come on and uh, criticize my business so heavily. Um, you know, just if we can just try and keep this peaceful, you know, um, and, uh, you know, out of such direct conflict. But uh, yes, I hear your point. I love it. I love it. I love it because Coca-Cola is a great client of mine, too. Yeah. It's good. So, uh, so, so again, so they go in and they say, Hey, um, we want to double. So one thing then I hear you saying is, Hey, we got to have the right. So you have a curve that goes up, right? Uh, and there's an inflection point and everybody probably listened to this in their future plans. The, if they look in the past, the steepness of the curve looked pretty flat, but the future plans look pretty steep. And so what I've learned to ask is who, what's the difference? I, wait, how can I do this? Yeah. You know, the, the flat curve going into a steep curve, draw a circle around that inflection point, right? Something has to be different there. And so I think I hear what you, right? Because you can't go from being flat to, to rocket ship. So, and, and, and what's different can't just be the money. Uh, it, it, yeah. Money. Yeah. It, 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 people, what else, what else goes at you? People and focus. Well, this is the thing. Okay, where is this revenue going to come from? Is it going to come from existing customers or is it going to come from new customers? And I've got to understand that at a very micro level. And this, again, very fundamental, but it's amazing how many companies miss this. And they say, well, we're going to invest in these new products. And what I always say is, oh, I see. You've created a hockey stick growth pattern. You know, you put the hockey stick down. No, really, what you've got is a hockey stick that's laying down. And it's never going to go up yeah. because you don't yeah. understand where is that growth going to come from. And if you can't dissect that, because I want to understand where is my existing customer come into play in this growth model? How but much? I think, of but I think a lot of companies, it, my sense of it, a lot of companies, you know, so they've got a list, you know, say the list is 20,000 or 30,000 that's on their newsletter out of that, you know, maybe they have 5,000 customers, you know, really at their really entry level swatch yeah. level product, you know, and maybe they have, uh, you know, I'm just thinking like small to medium enterprises. Uh, so, but the ratios probably hold. So they've got 5,000 customers, but in their sort of more robust higher end product suite, you know, they've got 1,500 customers, right? And they're working those customers pretty hard. 
So I find people come in and it's not that like they're not talking to their list or that, you know, or their base, but, but it's not like the, the, the 20,000 people in their newsletter, um, we can just go in and uplift them to, to, um, you know, through direct sales. Like most companies have worked their list pretty hard. So their growth is really talking about getting new customers. Like right. I, in today's world, right? Because you have the tech stack. If a company's doing 30, 40 million bucks, they have a tech stack, they've got a VP of finance, they've got a VP of marketing, they're on salesforce.com or some CRM. Um, they are, you know, Facebook, they are putting media out, they have a newsletter. Like I don't feel so much like there's all this juice to fund a hockey stick growth curve in their existing list. They got I think they got to get it from new conversions. Right. I, I'm not I'm not going to disagree with you on that. But and what I'm going to say is that there are many other people out there, many other entities that probably line up with that same profile of your existing customer. That's where I want it. That's where I want to focus my effort. Yeah, so, I've got so I've got to grow my business. People, so take this this uh, thing in Spain. Sorry to talk over you. Um, but yeah. once a thought pops in my head, you know, it turns into a wisp of smoke very quickly. Um, and I cannot recall it. Um, <laughs> so. The salespeople you're talking to in Spain, you know, what the, in order to double business, they don't want to do, you know, 10% better. Uh, so they're going out for new people. Like what, how do they have to upskill from what they're doing today? What are they doing wrong? And where's the, the chance to upskill them? Well, I, I love quoting Steve Jobs. Success is many times found in everything you say no to. And this is the issue in various countries and so forth that this entity was chasing all of these different squirrels, all, all these different side things. And I say, you're not getting any efficiencies. You, you, you're not getting any economies of scale. You, you're growing within this entity, but then there's this whole other marketplace out there. They're not even in North America. They are no presence in North America at all. And yet that as an opportunity presents. So my whole piece is my whole strategy to them is you got to get clarity around what is it that you ultimately, what is the outcome that you ultimately create? And what is the value that the customer will pay for that? Okay. Now, how do I begin to demonstrate that in my marketing, in my advertising, in my sales to begin to bring new people into the food chain? Because my ultimate goal is I want my customer base to see me as an ecosystem. In other words, they're in my ecosystem and they can't get out. I want to create such a level of stickiness that once I bring you in, I keep bolting on more and more and more and you you can't escape. I mean, this is what, you know, we you were talking about Salesforce earlier. That's what Salesforce has done. That's what Apple's done. That's what any great organization out there, what do they do? They create an ecosystem that pulls people in. That you just can't leave. So that's, and, I totally agree with that. And that's sort of CEO level sales, right? Or VP of strategy. Let's go down to the block and tackle biz dev SDR account uh, executive salesperson level. And so one thing I've been wanting to ask you, you know, if you're looking over your stuff, uh, every salesperson for me to you across the board runs into this one point in time in a deal, making a deal where We've done everything we can to build value, to create intrigue, to to resolve conflict, to create tension, of uh, you know build excitement, have credibility, have certainty. But eventually, they need to see a proposal, a contract, right? right? So, so you know, in general, like 
when the, at least when they asked me for a proposal, we said, well, we don't send out proposals, but we're happy to go over a contract. But anyway, call it whatever you want, you know, a, a back of an envelope, a contract, like they need to see the terms and you got to present it to them. And it's at that moment, no matter how big the deal is, they go, oh, hey, thanks. We're going to go check it out. Talk to you uh, sometime that it's convenient to us. Bye. Some, they can see a polite version of that. They could say an impolite version of that. But once they have the goods and you've done everything. So in your mind, what's the cure for this scenario where you've done everything you can, but they go, I need to see a contract. You send over the contract and they go ice cold. Right. Two things. You never deliver a contract without legs attached, period. This is one of the biggest mistakes salespeople do. They will send over their proposal, send over their contract, whatever, whatever they want to call it. Send it over. And then they wait for a response. That is just yeah. like stupid, dumb. I'm only going to send it over in conjunction with a meeting. And oh, can by you, the way, hold on a second. Yeah, I told you not to do that, you idiot. Like, listen, why don't you talk to Mark? Sorry. <laughs> See, there you go. There you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it, man. Um, it, it, so you, you never send a contract without legs attached. And here, but here's yeah. the whole thing. The contract super specific for, for people listening. Yeah. Cause you and I know, yeah. um, you know, yeah. these acronyms yeah. like, Hey, I'm going to ice them. You know, it's yeah. got to have legs attached. Um, uh, you know, um, the last easy day was yesterday, but, but for, for guys just coming on the pipe right. Right. into this area, yeah. break it down for them. Okay. So what I'm going to yeah. do is I'm only going to do that. If I've got the decision maker on the phone call with me on the zoom call teams, we, call. we have the decision maker. Great. Okay, great. I'm, okay. I'm, now what I'm going to do, is I'm starting off this proposal by laying into you with three or four critical issues that you have shared with me. Three or four critical issues. This yeah. is why this solution is the right one. And I got I got to frame this up and I got to frame this up. And I have to create in my verbal communication with you why we are the only ones that can communicate that. Now, I, I'm not about sitting there. Oh, well, we've won all these awards. Who gives a rip? You can go out to the internet and see all that. I, I, so, I don't so slow down, slow down a second. Cause I just I want people to appreciate yeah. where we are. Yeah. You're what I think what I'm trying to do is I'm moving this conversation up to a very high level Yep. in the world that you really live in. But now we're moving through it too quickly for people right. to break down what they're observing. That's I know you're on a roll. I just want to break it down. Right. Um. So one is, I'm trying to get this conversation out of the hypothecation or the hyperbole or the standardization of like the typical sales situation, because uh, what you're going to do is walk into that. That's all fine. Whatever you read in the books, but you're going to walk into real situations right. where you've done everything you can. Right. Right. Uh, are all the decision makers on board? Uh, do you really have the budget? And, and this isn't a quick discovery question. You've gone through it. Like they have mm -hmm. budget. You know who the decision makers are. You've spread yourself through the Like you've done everything that every book, you know, tells you to do. Then, then the situation I'm talking about, and then I think you were doing exactly correctly, is you deliver the contract, right? And then they start to uh, dig in and get cold because they want to bunker down and sort of accomplish a couple things. Um, right. Can we find that now that we know we have actual terms and we have actual price, can we find this cheaper? Right. 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 The second thing is um, get, now that we have this, we want to really start doing work. Like we haven't really done the work up to now um, of, of 
really deciding to go forward with this. We said we have, and we said we need it, you know, immediately. And we've talked about having a problem with the buyer, but now that they have a real price, real terms, now they're going to go and actually do work to see if they need the product, even though they said they need it or service. Um, they want to go check with legal and they just want to sort of uh, cover their ass and talk to everybody, show it around and get lots of opinions. And that's their instinct. And so what Mark now is doing in my mind is keeping you out of this thing at a sophisticated level, right? When you're talking, cause you're, you're a 30 year old dude or gal, right? Who's selling to, you know, guys who have 50, 80, hundred billion dollars. Like they've done this a lot more times than you. They're more sophisticated than you. And without Mark's where he's going to take us now, as much as you think you found the decision maker, as much as you've done discovery, as much as you've tied them down to objections, they are about to put you in the rock crusher. But Mark's going to show us when you start to see those, you know, like in Star Wars, you know, the walls closing right in on you, how you get out of that situation. What you want to do is you want to be able to pose to them questions that get them thinking. I'll, I'll share with you one. I yeah. was dealing with a CEO. This was not a massive contract by any means, but again, contract legs. CEO cuts right to the back page, sees what the price is. He goes, Mark, your price is way too high. We can get this cheaper elsewhere. How yeah. much will you cut it by? That was his exact words that he shared with me. I, I've heard that. Right. I've heard that, you know, dozens, if right. not hundreds of times. And my response to him was this. We will not cut the price. All we'll do is change the value you're going to get. How much business do you think you're going to lose from the new competitors that are coming into the marketplace next year? Pause. Silence. Then he says, that was good. You're hired. So now, get excellent. Get and I, I agree with that structure. It's very powerful. Give us a couple versions of that in situations because yeah. that was perfect for that situation. Yeah. But what so break down what you did yeah. there? What, we, what, what the what the what the um and I want to I would tell you the first thing that I think you did is you had certainty within yourself. Like I don't do motivation and you know believe in yourself and try hard and surround yourself with good people. Like if you can't figure that out, um, then this stuff is going to be too hard for you. But but I think there is a sense of I know exactly you. There's a sense of you buyer have the problem. I don't have the problem. Right. So I care, but also you know what I don't. So I'll care to a point, but but I'm not going to help you. Uh, solve your problems more than you'll help yourself. So if I'm working harder than you are on your own company, that's, that's doesn't make sense. So I, th I think until you get that inside your head, like I'm not going to work harder than you will on your own problems, or I'm not going to let you dump your problems yeah. on me right. uh, without giving them back to you. Right. So, so I, my sense is you've got that in your head uh, with a great deal of certainty. I can hear it in your voice, yeah. your attitude. Yeah. And see, this is the whole key. I'm confident enough. You have to be, you have to believe in the outcome you're going to be able to achieve. You, you, you have to believe in the outcome and you have to be prepared to walk away. And I was, we were prepared. My, my, my team would have, I didn't care. We will walk away from this. And 
what I did was I asked the CEO, I was confident enough to ask the CEO a question that I knew he did not have the answer to. I knew he did not have the answer to. And you know what? I didn't have the answer to either. But I knew worst case is we're going to get a conversation going. That, so I, mean, I, I put I that in a couple different forms. Yeah. You know, like SaaS software or real estate right. or like some right. actual. Right. So, so people, I think, you, you know, we could spend an hour on yeah. these five seconds. Right. Talking about it. Here's the key. Here's the key. You want to be able to, you never put a price, you never put a contract in front of somebody until you understand what is the outcome that they're looking for. No, no they're, they're looking for this. I don't care what they're looking for. What's the outcome they want? And I got to be able to quantify and qualify what is that outcome. See, we knew, we knew from our research, from, from our work with the company in terms of the selling process, that they were at risk of losing a substantial piece of business. So my our, our price tag was chump change. I was very confident in that. So, and you have to be able to frame that up in a question that is going to get them thinking, wow, this is critical. Because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to do two things. A, I'm trying to create urgency to get the decision now. And two, I'm trying to get them to realize that I'm the only one that has thought of this potential issue. SaaS situation. Hey, how much revenue is at stake if the implementation of this software doesn't go right? You know, you, you ask them a pain-filled question that they haven't, they haven't thought of the answer to. But what is it? Worst case is you get a conversation. Best case is they say, let's do it. So That's what I want to do. Let's let's play this forward, and I'm gonna be an antagonist. You know, sure. you're the protagonist, and and you know, I know the question, and I'm gonna do because I've seen it be a little bit dismissive of it, and see if you can keep searching, right? Be, beyond, um, because the concern is somebody listening will apply that perfectly, right, and then they'll get batted away, yeah, uh, yeah. and then not know how to keep it going, yeah. So. So maybe we could try this a little bit. Yeah. And I go, hey, Mark, um, listen, we really like you guys. You're clearly, you know, we looked at a bunch of different firms. Your software outperforms. Uh, you know, we do have a budget for the year. You guys came out of nowhere, really. You know, we were going to get, uh, you know, we budgeted for Salesforce. I understand you guys are more focused on our industry. You guys are better coming to train us. Like, it's amazing. We do to get, get the CRM going. Um, but as I'm looking here, we just didn't have this anything close to this in our budget. And I, yeah. I, I think I'm just going to have to push this out to, you know, Q1 next year once we have our annual offsite and I can rebudget it with the board. And then we can, you know, jump back in and see if it's a fit. What's the risk to your organization? What's the risk to your sales team in terms of failure to deliver, in terms of retention, inability to recruit properly? If they don't have a CRM system implemented in the first quarter to give them confidence in making next year's number, how, how do you see that playing out? Well, you know, it's a great question. Uh, I don't have the answer to it, but I do feel like I can lean, you know, I can lean. We have a new VP of sales um, and I can throw some sharp elbows at him. And I think he can grind on the guys pretty hard through the balance of this year and, and sort of get some more juice 
out of the customer base and out of the guys he has. And then we can go fresh into the new year yeah. with budget and, and, and pick a technology. Well, it's great that you got your new VP of sales. That's absolutely outstanding. But the question is, this probably isn't what you wanted him to focus his attention on initially, or you wanted her to focus her attention on. So what we want to do is I want to take this off of their plate. We take this off of their plate. This way they can use their sharp elbows. They can grind in. They can make it happen on other things to truly drive the business in. What we're talking about here, I think, is giving your new VP of sales the support that they need to be successful. Because he, here's a question I'd ask. When you brought your new VP of sales in, how did they respond to the objectives, to the, the goals that you were laying out to them? Uh, they said that they signed up for it, but they said it was going to be a stretch to make it happen with the, you know, our current systems. They want to, you know, they want to bring in training. They want to bring in technology. They want to bring in advertising. You know, these fuckers, they always want you, <laughs> you to pay for their, they want you to pay for their success, yeah. you know? Yeah. Totally understand that. But here's the whole thing. I don't think there's any reason why we want to tie one arm behind their back. Let's give them the muscle because really, if we look at it, implementation of this is still less than not doing it and still less than what you've invested in all of your people. Because so, again, yeah, you know, this is I'm, awesome, Mark. I mean, I totally, this is so what Mark just did is if you're in sales, he just put you on notice that he could come into your company and take your job and your company and everything. I mean, that is a masterclass in keeping it going, not being cliche, not being trite, staying in the conversation, being present, being focused, and it's layered and nuanced. And the thing is, I think what's magic, and I don't, I don't even know if I can do this. I have a different method, but I don't think I can do this with the finesse that you're doing it. Here, here's my impression of what you're doing. You're asking a high stakes question in which it feels like there is just, uh, th there's only two routes and they take the negative route and they find themselves in another room or in another conversation with another credible high stakes question. And then they are taking the uh, the least obvious choice being difficult, right? And they find them and they feel like they're putting an end to the conversation and they find themselves in another high stakes, more difficult scenario that is legitimate, that is not cliche, that is credible, that is painful, that is honest, and that is truthful. And that is amazing to see just that happen in you know these couple of steps. So again, if you're listening to Mark, like, uh, and I'm putting him in these, these are, by the way, these are situations 99 out of a hundred people can't get out of. And Mark is just shrugging it off. Like, like, a, um, you know, just brushing it off his shoulder, like a piece of dust. I, this like, this is where millions of dollars lie for everybody who's listening to this. And so I just have a lot of respect for that skill set that you have. Thank you. But, Here's the issue. How can somebody get it? <laughs> like, well, you know, he, yeah, he, he, here's how I you mean, get you're, it. You're good, but you know, no. are you a savant? No, no. I made the upper half of my class possible. We'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> he, here's the whole thing. It, it starts with having a level of confidence because you've done the homework on the customer you're dealing with. 
You don't just wake up in the morning and say, oh, I'm going to throw a contract across the table to this person. You've, you have to have done your homework. And that means coming to the table, just as you talk about in your book, you've gone through and, and when you're taking somebody in, you've rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. I, I, the, the, the story that you yeah. share of the gentleman from Columbus, Ohio, I can't remember if it was in, in the pitch book or the other one, but, but you, you were working with him so much to where he knew exactly what to say. This whole thing, you have to prepare to go into conversations like this. You, you just don't fall off a truck and say, I'm going to so, do um, it. Again, uh, I don't think we have to talk to the experienced guys who are like, oh, yeah, I should do a little bit more of that. I know how. If we go back 10 years in the careers of guys listening and they're going, how do I, I mean, how do I get inside? Because every book will go get inside the head of your customer, understand what your customer's root cause is, understand what they're really doing, right? But I think people that it's easy to say go do that, but how if I'm a 28-year-old kid about to get on a call on a $250,000 account, what do I really actually yeah. do in your in in Mark Hunter's world to understand that customer at a deep enough level that you can be a peer or even a superior to him in his industry? Right. There are inherent issues, inherent questions relative to the position you're calling in. You may not know enough about the company, but you know that you're calling into the CIO or the CTO. You, you know, you're calling into who, you know, you're talking to whoever it is. So you know that there are inherent issues and situations that they're dealing with. You may be dealing with simply HR. I don't care what it is. And those are universal questions. Now, if if you're focused on a particular industry, now you can get even more specific. I was having a conversation with a, a senior level person in the retail industry. I don't do a lot of work in the retail industry, but I do know, I just happen to hear that there's more than a hundred ships parked offshore waiting to unload. And the conversation I had with him was, was this is a call. I didn't know where it was going to go. I said, how much of your fourth quarter merchandise do you think is sitting in ships offshore right now? And he laughed. He said, I don't know, but I have a feeling it's a lot. Now, what did I just do with that? I don't know enough about his industry. I hope he's not listening. And what, what happened though, was that I suddenly earned a little piece of credibility. And, and I would add to that, you know, if you read the flash roll, what I think young people could do, I mean, this is your show, but I just, just jump in. What I try and do is develop this flash roll capability. So I then I know the ships sitting offshore for me because there's the internet today. Like, remember when I, when I was coming up through this business, if I wanted to look something up about ships, I had to take my ass down to the public library and look yeah. that shit up. Right. Which right. Is, so I was right. not going to do that. But the fact that I like, that's why I'm like, Oh my God, I can learn something about an actual ship that's actually offshore in Los Angeles. Right. Become knowledgeable of this conversation. Get the fuck out of my way. Like this is this is like aliens have come to earth and given me a a, a laser weapon for making money. So it's called it, it, would, yeah, it's called Google. Google makes you money. Just so take a few minutes to do the research. A few minutes, yeah. So I would come in that conversation uh and sort of be prepared to say, not saying that you did it wrong, but you know, in my style, I would say. Um, yeah, it looks like there's, uh, you know, 87 ships offshore. Um, they can get 10% of those on every eight hours. So at a dock rate of, 
you know, four per day. You've got offloading of a 90% recidivism rate on uh, trucking and logistics. So they will stack up at uh, 80 to 90 at the dock, even though they're getting them in. So probably 25% of shipments are, you know, hitting the road. Let's say, you know, given the size you guys are, you're probably accounting for 1% of that volume. So I don't know, like three to four weeks to get some offload from uh, your non-domestic shipping. I mean, am I in the, am I in the strike zone there in the right? Well, you're in the strike zone. And my other comment was, I, I, it's not only the ship issue, but it's a lack of chassis. Yeah. They can unload these things, but there's no chassis to put them on, which means they can't move out of the port. Yeah, so and, show them that you know the underlying map. Right. And so you, yeah. you're suddenly at their level. You you are suddenly at their level. And we wound up having an excellent 15 to 20-minute conversation with a next step. That's what sales is all about, speaking to people at their level. I think that is that is a million percent. I mean, you know, one of my job here is to get people on and prove that they're wrong and how right I am and get into conflict and then talk about, you know, culture and um, all gender bathrooms. But like when you have people with such good talent, it's hard, you know, to be in conflict with them. So I agree with the things you're saying. I listened to a couple of your podcasts. I had some other questions. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that I see that you are able to do is ask a lot of questions, okay? And in a truthful, painful, honest, specific way. I feel like we take 20 years off of the experience level and the questions really feel triangulated, annoying, and um, self-serving. So I see the sales masters of today's age saying, you know, do discovery, understand the client or the prospect, ask them lots of questions, you know, get information from them. But when I see it in execution, I've trained 80,000 salespeople from stage. When I see it in execution, they feel like, uh, you know, um, uh, these F-16s, when, uh, when another plane gets, you know, turns on the radar on them, they get missile locked. I see like when kids say, so, you know, what's your budget this year, which is a terrible question, right? But what's your budget this year for, you know, upgrading SaaS software? What they're hearing, they don't hear that. They hear do, 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 missile lock, missile lock, evasive action immediately, missile lock. And why are you able to ask these, these truthful, honest, transparent, compelling questions, but in translation, with newer guys in the field, they're asking these uh, self-serving, uh, what I would say, cornering questions. Uh, here's what it comes down to. I mean, it is about the questions you ask, but all you're having is a conversation. For crying out loud, this, we're not creating world peace. We're not solving world hunger. We're just having a conversation. So what I want to do is I want to ask, and this is what I found. You can have the same question asked by two people and get totally different answers. Why? Because the one person asks it with a level of empathy, with a level of eye, with, with just a level of a personalization to it. Yeah, teach and us how to teach us how to ask questions. Give give a scenario, you know, SaaS software, whatever yeah. you're comfortable with. Teach us how to ask a question. Here's what I love. I, yeah. I may I may have a series of questions. Hey, tell me, how how is this? How is that conversion working out for you when you did that a year ago? Now, you notice how I said that? I said that with a little bit of a halting voice. We happen to be on camera right now, and I put a little, little uh, bit of expression in, into it. And, and, and what does it make? It makes it seem more in the moment, more personable, and it lowers 
the defense mechanism with the other person versus, okay, tell me how much, how, you know, whoa, whoa, hold it. That raises. Well, and I think somebody wrote here um, that's commenting on LinkedIn, true curiosity. And I think that's what I'm reading from you Yeah, is that you are not asking a question that you know the answer to, and you're actually curious about the answer. You, you hit on something there. Confident salespeople. Go back to this conversation I had with the CEO. Confident salespeople will ask customers questions that the customer doesn't have an answer to and they don't have an answer to. See, most salespeople will only ask questions that the customer can't answer, but they Ooh, can answer. That's, that, so that's how they look brilliant. Yeah. Oh, shut up. I mean. Yeah, I think there. that's something interesting to me that I just heard from you, which is you're asking a question and this allows curiosity. They don't know the answer to and you don't know the answer to. I, I like this a lot. I had not thought of this in, in this way. So um, that is how you can actually get a conversation in which you're curious and they're engaged is that it's relevant, it's meaningful, there's truth, there's pain, but they don't know the answer and you also don't know the answer. Is that I'm trying to unpack that, that, that that's spot on because what is it doing? It's creating a conversation. And in the conversation is when you're going to begin to learn new insights. You're going to begin to learn new insights. And as you learn new insights, you have the ability to ask more questions on what they just shared with you. Now, what is it doing for the other person? That person's sitting there saying, this is not a vendor. This is not a salesperson. This is a person who's truly helping me with my business. See, they're seeing you in a completely different light. We want to stand out and stand up. You're not going to stand out and stand apart with your product offering. Let's not kid ourselves. You start the process with who you are. And what, what is that going to do? That's going to earn you the next conversation. That's going to earn you. There's just so, like, we can do this for hours. I just would love people to hear, sorry to be interrupting you, Mark, but again, no. I'm trying to do with a highlight the things that are so amazing about what you're saying. Um, um, standing out as a person, as a product, as a service. I think, you know, when people hear that, then you start to get all slickness, either in appearance, right? This is why salespeople tend, if you look at like uh, pharmaceutical salespeople, right? So they're very young and they stand out, they're coiffed, their, their uh, clothing is impeccable, uh, you know, their makeup, they have makeup or, you know, their, their fitness and they stand up straight and they are, in, you know, they're, that is their differentiation because everything else that they do and are is commoditized. So right. they feel like the way they can stand out is the way they look and appear. But if you look at Mark or you look at myself, I mean, there's just not a lot, you know, here to get excited about. Now, no insult. I'm sure your wife loves you. Um, you know, hopefully mine does, but I'm not sure I could say that with such confidence. Um, but, uh, you know, there's not a lot to look at here. It's not fancy right? It is who you are on the inside, not, and, and I saw somebody here talk about the importance of tone and pace and we can talk about it. It's who you are on the inside that typically needs work, not how you look on the outside. And I think that would, that would uh, sort of fly in the face of the sort of generic rules of business. Well, it does. And, and especially right now because of COVID. I mean, if, if, if there's something COVID has taught us over the last 18 months, and that is transparency and authenticity. Everything's visible. Everything is well known out there. So as a result, I think people are craving 
this level of authenticity and this level of transparency. Well, on, on that, I'm hoping you could teach me something, a problem that I have. Yeah. Maybe you can fix a couple problems that I have. One is, uh, so one of my clients um, was a Lamborghini and did a great deal with them. And I, I have just an incredible Lamborghini, right? But I'm afraid to drive it anywhere or use it in any videos because uh, I don't want to blow my credibility and authenticity. How, you know, what's a potential solution? And I have 13 cars. I have 25. Like I've been in motorsports. My son races. Like we have a whole garage of snap-on tool. Like we're from racing and car culture. So it's part of our lifestyle, but I'm, a, I'm afraid to show any of it in really in any way, because I'm afraid that I pattern match to, you know, YouTuber, um, you know, bought a Lamborghini to put on YouTube. How can I solve this con uh, being uh, in, uh, uh, you know, w w not blowing my, my credibility and being in and being congruous with my own internal personality with those kinds of visuals that I enjoy, you know, doing. Yeah. Well, first of all, don't change who you are. Be proud. I, I, I tell any self, be proud of who you are. I love it. The yeah. key is, do you take the time to listen? Are you empathetic in terms yeah. of listening to other people's story? This is the whole thing. You have the Lamborghini. That's wonderful. Uh, great. Drive it. Show it. But the piece, the key piece is when you take the time to listen to somebody else share their story. What does that do? That suddenly says, you know, this person's not just about his Lamborghini. So his let, me, let me hear, let me feedback. What I'm saying is, is um, it's, so it's not about, uh, you, you want to be careful not to come out and preach, you know, or tell, but if you have empathy and listen, then it doesn't matter what's in the backdrop. That's exactly. I happen to live in the same town as Warren Buffett. Okay. Yeah. And Warren Buffett happens to be a master of just, listening, listening. And nobody doubts his wealth. Nobody doubts his wealth. And, I, and I, I, do, have I do have to tell you, I, um, the, I try and get away from the Warren Buffett stories because it's hard to emulate, you know, it's hard for somebody yeah. to really like put themselves in the Warren Buffett, you know, mindset because, you know, Warren Buffett is also like, yeah, but if I don't like you, I'm going to buy the city you live in, you know, and, um, and, you know, declare it a uh, fireworks factory. And then, you know, so he has a lot of capabilities that we don't. Um, I do something that's terrible. And maybe you can, as a last thing, or one of the last things, try and fix it. And I do, I have this behavior because it accomplishes something specific. I get on the phone with somebody who is very senior at a client or a prospect we're trying to get. And we'll talk to him for a little bit. Hey, what are you trying to do? And then eventually they'll say something that I think is ridiculous. And I will say, uh, motherfucker, are you, are you like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? That is some superior bullshit right there. Who, who told you to say that? No, honestly, like, give me their number. I'm going to call them and tell them never to talk to you again. That's terrible. So first of all, it's shock and awe. Second of all, nobody talks like this. If they, um, really are supplicating and are needy of the account. It generates honesty, it generates transparency, but it also uses very um, uh, high invective language. Now, it works a great effect and I can make it work for me, but I always am wondering, you know, is there another way to accomplish the same thing, which is knock them down a peg, have truth and pain out on the table, 
and really get to the nuts of what we're talking about and strip away all the multiple social layers of and, and pleasantries that typically ha happen at the beginning of a conversation. No, don't change anything of what you just said. You just do it because that's you. That's you. That is if if you tried to be somebody else. All right. Right. They'd say, what? what? Did you not take your meds this morning? Or are you on meds? Yeah, I, be, it's great. It's We're, be it's be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. That is great. I love it. What are you? You're so good at all this. Your experience at it. Is there anything that you're working on today that you feel like? Um, you know, it was a growth area for you. So, so I think we could just see from this interview and we, this could go on for hours. Like, um, you know how to deal with objections. You know how to deal with no, you know how to get frame control, you know, time constraints, you know how to deal with powerful individuals, you know how to set yourself as a peer, um, you know how to guide through conversations, you know, steer through conversations where, uh, you know, people are, uh, are, are trying to, um, stall or negotiate heavily on price. And, you know, these are all things that you have nailed down as tight as somebody can nail them down. So where, what's left for you to do? I keep learning. I mean, the processes I'm using today will not be the processes I'm using two or three years from now. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. So let's hold there. If you're coming into this business and you're reading stuff that feels in your gut that it's it's culturally, the, the world has gone on. So feel, felt, found, uh, feature, benefit, stretch, benefit, tie down. If you're reading books and you're hearing these things, and you can't really envision yourself saying them, or if you did say them, you feel like the prospect would just go, boy, I'm sorry, what are you talking about? And, and you feel in your gut that that's the case. Um, it is true that culture and norms uh, and business and negotiation styles do progress and move on in the same way. Like I think about movies, you couldn't make um, something about Mary today or the, the, the hangover movies, right? right? They were made, they were funny at that time. If you try and make it today, right? It's not funny. You know, you'll get me too all over you and you'll have all kinds of problems. So culture, cultural preferences move on. So I think that's what I hear you saying is like, as, as society evolves, your methodology have to has to evolve too. Can you give me an example of something that you've just had to drop out of your your you know toolkit or an arrow you've had to take out of your quiver because it's just not in culture anymore? Yeah, in terms of just shortening it down, everything is is just down. I, I I'm down to now that emails I do and so forth is what I call the one swipe rule. If if I can't read it in one swipe, my smartphone, I'm sending it. So I that's something I'm working on tremendously. It's condensing, consolidating everything. If the message can't be said in Twitter format, and I can't, and I hate Twitter, that's separate aside. Uh, it, but if it can't be said in 144, 288 characters, it's not worthy of being, being said. That's the big thing I'm working on. And uh, one other thing, as you see uh, people come up and, you know, sort of pitch today on balance, Right. What what do you see over and over and over and over again that you wish, you know, that just makes you groan and wish you could just ha have people understand like this is not the route to take people. What what is really gets under your collar? What's under my collar is still people out there talking, doing the capabilities type presentations. They get into the whole capabilities. Hey, everything's already out there on the Internet. You know that nobody talks to anybody without first Googling them. OK, let's get that out on the table right now.
So don't sit there and waste time doing this whole capabilities crap. If I can't cut, if, if I can't cut to the chase and I want to treat every person I'm talking to as if they're a bobblehead doll, my objective is to get your head bobbing, get your head moving within 10 seconds, within five seconds, within two seconds. And I've got to engage you with that question and I've got to keep you engaging. I've got to take the time to listen to you. That's one of the biggest changes because again, the whole world has, you know, uh, anybody can buy anything anywhere they want. I've got to create a reason as to why I want you to invest your money with me. So good. How, uh, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm, my job is to ask questions, but I'm also trying to <laughs> listen and learn at the same time. So Mark, what should people do if they want more Mark Hunter? Well, uh, I go by the sales hunter. People ask me, what was your name before you changed it? No, I've always had the last name Hunter. Anyway, thesaleshunter.com. That's the website you can jump out to. We're all over social media. Uh, it's where I, fo- I follow you on LinkedIn and, uh, you, you know, and, and got books. You can go out there to the website, go out to Amazon. But my whole objective is to influence and impact salespeople. That's what my objective is. Uh, not, not just sales, anybody. I want to influence and impact people because my objective, same objective you have, is to help others see and achieve what they didn't think was possible. You know, that's pretty cool to wake up to in the morning and say, I'm going to go out and help others see and achieve what they didn't think was possible. When you do that, it's been a good day. I really like that. I think as I think about what motivates me and people ask, you know, other than, uh, you know, family and having the comfort of a great lifestyle we live by the beach here in Southern California and we drive a bunch of cars and, and uh, we meet a lot of interesting people and everything like that. But I, uh, I have a, like a little bit different twist of interest in your comment on it. When I see bad art in terms of the pitch or sales process, it matter of fact, like everybody, everybody in the company puts a paywall in front of me because I'll just, you know, try and jump over it and help people you know, without getting paid, without compensation, without remuneration. Like when I see that bad art form yeah. of, you, you know, you say just laying out all the features, explaining the benefits and asking people if they have any questions, uh, I get so invigorated because I know I can help them so easily change their entire life by just not doing that and doing this. But see, what, what that means is that you care about people. See, th- th- this is what's funny. You you care. Your, your cars, your bikes, your lifestyle, that's just a scorecard of the results you've been able to achieve. But what does it come down to? You have been able to influence and impact thousands and thousands of people. I'd say hundreds and probably thousands of companies over the years. That's what we get to do in sales every day. Yeah, to a million, me. million percent. And I think... I think, um, you know, just around the corner on this, like when you know this, I'm sure Mark has had this experience, but like I walked into Symantec and I saved a billion dollar division, not by doing the McKinsey, you know, bringing 12 people and and getting the data and A-B testing new offers. I, I you know, I just looked at the 22 salespeople in the division and I go, that, what? No, this, this is 20 years old stuff. Right. What if we just did it this way? What if we just did this pitch? I mean, in eight hours, turned around a billion dollar division like to me and you could get these powers not by investing 25 years into like tomorrow you could do that so it's all right there uh and that all you have to do is you know do whatever mark tells you to do immediately 
because you got the confidence to do it. That's the reason you're able to do it. McKinsey needs all the studies and so forth to justify it. You just walk in and say this, boom, this is what we do. That's what sales, that's the beauty of sales. Awesome. And I think, uh, so, so my, my last expression here, the last thing I want to say or the last word is probably what you think is sales today is not sales. When you, if you can re-listen to this and think about the elemental things that are actually going on, truth, pain, curiosity, insight, knowledge, confidence, those are the pillars on which you build all this other stuff, you know, these features and differentiation and value proposition and, uh, you know, um, offers and, uh, you know, all the other stuff you have. But unless they sit on the pillars of stuff that you've seen Mark talk about, then it's just going to continue to be frustrating. I really feel that, that way. Mark, thank you very much for being here today. I feel this could go on for hours and hours and hours, but I know you have to get back into the coal mine of um, your, by the way, where are you calling in from again? I'm calling in from Omaha, Nebraska today. Right. And so yeah. listen, guys, this can even be done from Omaha. If they can do it from Omaha, Nebraska, for fuck's sake. You could do it from anywhere, yeah, you right? You could do it right. from where, yeah. right? That's from, right. you know, Cannes, France or, or right. Los Angeles or Manhattan. Come on, give right. yourself a break. All right, Manhattan, Mark, thank Manhattan. you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, stay on for a minute. Uh, Daniel's going to uh, take over the controls here, and I'd love to just talk to you for a minute off right. air. You got it. If you're planning to become a dealmaker at this level, make sure to join the Daily Dealmaker. We get into one little piece of this daily. And so you're just stacking and stacking and stacking these tools and tactics and strategies until they come out of you as naturally as they come out of me and the people that I work with. Add the tips, tools, strategies, tactics a little bit every day. And by the end of a year, you'll be a totally different, new, improved person and a very strong deal maker. Hey, thanks for listening, and be sure to stay tuned for more great content from Oren Claff. If you want to get daily insights and additional assets, go to orenclaff.com slash daily and sign up for a seven-day trial of The Daily Dealmaker. See you next time.